Welcome to the February 2023 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, the EHFF. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline, the Vaulteroise Galaire. Our guest this month is Sarah McKinley, who is the Director of Community Wealth Building Programmes for the Democracy Collaborative, working out of her home office in Brussels, Belgium. Sarah's background is in community development, and she has worked at various levels with a range of community development organisations, including the Greater Southwest Development Corporation, a Chicago-based community development corporation, and the National Alliance of Community Economic Development Associations in Washington, D.C. I began the interview by asking Sarah to say a few words about what community wealth building is. Community wealth building is actually, it's a collection of strategies, but that coherently come together to develop local economies. It's an economic development model, but it's rooted on broad-based community ownership and control of assets. So things like land and housing, jobs and enterprise, spending and financial flows. So looking across the whole of a local economy and finding out ways and building new methods and institutions and forms of collective ownership and stewardship of those assets in place so that the benefits from those assets, the wealth created by those assets, recirculate for the benefit of the people living in that place and for the place itself. So people, place, and planet, but through new forms or concerted collective ownership forms in place and stewardship. So that that's what community wealth building is. And it's it's a way of thinking about and transforming local economies so that they're more vibrant, more resilient, um, and more sustainable um, for our, our current time. And yeah. and just to say, within within a community wealth building strategy, there are many different approaches to creating those uh, collective forms of ownership. So cooperative enterprise. People have cooperatives in communities across the world, ways to collectively meet local needs and provide goods and services to people living in place. So cooperatives, for example, community land trusts, community development financial institutions, credit unions, which are mutually owned um, banking institutions that invest in real places to build capacity and, and grow infrastructure and things of that nature. Local um, public spending, how is that procurement impact going towards local enterprises, towards um, local communities? How are local assets such as land and, and housing being used in productive and collective ways so that people can have affordable housing, green space, and productive community spaces and areas where they can come together and, and exchange. So really thinking broadly about all these different forms, but then connecting them together so that they're greater than the sum of their parts, so that the cooperative is able to connect to the credit union and that credit union can invest in the cooperative and the cooperative can access 
land to put back into productive use, things of that nature. So connecting all of these different elements in a really concerted way and providing the policy resource and capacity building ecosystem to support uh, those, those institutions, those community owned institutions to be able to scale. And by scale, I mean, just in terms of a way to really meet the needs of people in place and to really offer an alternative to more extractive corporate or capitalist modes of of meeting economic needs so so that's that's sort of the broad ecosystem of community wealth building in a place mm, great thanks yeah I mean, that sounds like a really a very wide-ranging um, potentially very powerful way to to stimulate local economies. Um, there's, I've heard that there's some interesting legislation in Scotland relating to this. Could you say a few words about that? Absolutely. And of course, I'll, I'll start just by saying that I am not the expert in this. Some of my colleagues or partners that we work with um, know more about that. But certainly we've been involved in some of the efforts in Scotland. And as you mentioned, there is now at the Scottish government level consultation. So they're putting out um, for reaction and feedback to the general public a proposal for a community wealth building legislation. And as I said before, community wealth building is aspects of community wealth building are happening in places all over. And so there's a lot of activity already in a community wealth building environment. And so this legislation is not meant to supplant or override any of that activity, but to augment and connect it. So what are the what are the policy pieces that are that are missing um, or that are potentially obstructionist or, or challenging or create difficulty in getting access to certain resources or certain supports or certain regulatory protections and so forth, looking across existing legislation and and sort of nestling into that. So this legislation is really looking at things like, because in, in Scotland, for example, there already is community empowerment legislation that's about participation and, and how to engage communities. So this wouldn't be overriding that, it would be augmenting that and connecting some of those participatory activities through that legislation into support of other supportive legislations as well. Um, similarly, they have a community asset transfer legislations already in, in Scotland, so not supplanting that, but augmenting that, looking for the ways to make it easier for local authorities or local institutions like NHS trusts to connect their procurement and their contracts to local enterprises, to community-owned enterprises? How, how can there be legislative and regulatory changes to support that, to allow authorities to have more autonomy in determining where and how their local spending goes to, to local community actors? How to help for example, existing enterprises uh, convert to employee-owned enterprises or to sell to their employees so that um, if a business owner is retiring or no longer wants to continue with that business, we can keep that enterprise in a community and, and transfer the assets to the employees of that community. So what kind of legislation can support that, make that easier, sort of open up some of the red tape, if you will. So looking at different aspects of legislation. And just to say in Scotland, this all began with a local effort, really the first uh, local authority in Scotland, North Ayrshire on the on the West Coast, um, just outside of Glasgow, 
began their community wealth building journey about three years ago or so, and really concertedly looking at how they as a local authority can um, not only redirect their spending to local assets and uh, to local enterprises and to use that spending as a way to build the capacity of local community-owned enterprises, but also looking at all of their assets from, you know, their own employment practices, how they can uh, make those more fair and just through living wage increases, through uh, more engagement um, and, and ownership, looking at different land assets they have. One thing they're doing in North Ayrshire is they've taken two former, I believe that they were uh, former waste sites, whatever they were, they were feral land that wasn't being productively used. They they cleaned that land and are now turning it into solar farms that are going to not only be an opportunity for more democratic municipal enterprise, so those will be enterprises owned in a, a more democratic form, but then also to they'll be returning money back into the grid. And with that surplus, they'll create a fund that will invest in growing their cooperative ecosystem. So looking at those sorts of things. So so community that started in North Ayrshire and was such a strong model that other places in Scotland started really looking at that, paying attention, thinking about how other places in Scotland can do that. And that sort of rose up to the level of, of the Scottish government. They now have a minister for community wealth building um, within the Scottish government. And as I said, are now advancing a legislation that really connects some of the dots among and between existing legislation to make it easier for local communities to to take on and augment some of these strategies in more in more powerful ways. Just talking about this, I realized I, I was in the meeting in Ireland with some people from different sectors, and there seemed to be a fair bit of confusion about what social enterprise is. And could you give me what you would consider to be a uh, definition of social enterprise, or is there is it possible to define in an easy way? Or? Well, and of course, you know, one of the reasons why there's confusion about that is because there are many definitions of what a social enterprise is. For our purposes, we and of the, part of that is just because there's no sort of separate tax identity for a mm -hmm. uh, 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 social enterprise. So, you know, where it, at least in a U.S. context, there are things like limited liability corporations. There is a separate entity, which is a cooperative, and that is a separately taxed, you know, structure. There's a different legal form for these kinds of enterprises. Social enterprises do not themselves have a, a, a separate um, legal or uh, tax form. And so in some senses, it's open to personal subjective identification. That said, we often, when we talk about, so first of all, a social enterprise has to have a mission orientation. So it's it has a social mission. It's, it's addressing a social need or um, a social gap. And that could be anything from addressing specific issues of, of poverty or disinvestment um, in a local place or uh, environmental issues, looking at sort of green issues, but also, it, so it has to have a social mission and it has to have a social um, way of supporting that mission. In other words, paying good jobs, um, paying a living wage, supporting a viable, fair work environment themselves. We almost always look at uh, social enterprises that themselves are an enterprise as part of a nonprofit. And so so the reason for that is 
because it's not a profit-seeking enterprise. It it is actually putting its any profits it gets back into fulfilling the mission of that nonprofit or charitable organization. So, for example, you know the the one that so many people are familiar with would be, say, a charity shop for Oxfam, right? That charity shop, any profits that they're making are going back into fulfilling the mission of the greater organization such as Oxfam. So that's the more sort of commercially known example of how we think of social enterprises, but you can have social enterprises in many, many forms. But I would say that for our purposes, when we talk about social enterprise, really, you know, looking at its social mission, the way it actually acts as itself an enterprise and the, and the, protections it gives to the people working within it, um, just in terms of fair employment, good employment, um, and so forth. Uh, And then also, what are its profits going back into? And how is that serving the community around them? Mm -hmm. And of course, many don't necessarily have to be profitable, but sustaining sort of thinking of, you know, sustaining themselves and filling the need in that local area. Some people, uh, I've come across some people who say that community wealth building could lead to a kind of protectionism because you're essentially keeping funds circulating in an area and then they aren't getting out to other areas which might also need funds. So what, what would you say to that? Yeah, and it's something that certainly we hear often. And I, I will say, I do think that is sort of a residual mindset of our competitive global economy and it's very it's a very zero-sum mindset right and a scarcity mindset that if i am doing this here it means i must be taking away from somewhere else and in fact that's a bit of a fallacy of 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 a neoliberal economic mindset because in fact if you're meeting the needs of your place that isn't stopping another place from meeting its needs. That's not stopping another organization or company or or entity from employing people in another place, right? Um, and in order to create sort of vibrant local economies where people have good jobs and can also access you know, um, high quality goods and services that aren't killing our planet and each other, you know, to, to do that locally doesn't mean you're taking away from London's ability to do that locally, London can do that as well. Um, and London can meet those needs and employ the people that need to be employed in its own way there. Um, and so first of all, I would take issue with that sort of zero sum thinking in the first place. But I would also say that there is a rebalancing that needs to be happening. When we talk about that kind of, well, if we do this here, we're taking away from there. and that makes it sound as though that's not happening anyways. And as a matter of fact, it is. Decisions about, you know, purchasing and investment and all these things are in fact directing money away from certain places or directing resources, directing jobs, directing other things away from certain places and into other places. And that's been happening for a long time in in most of our Western industrialized places at leading to agglomeration in certain cities, in certain 
um, industries in, in, in certain areas. And what we're talking about is a rebalancing that that does not have to be as concentrated as it has been. There are places that actually do and all places have assets, right? All places have their own assets. And rather than the value of those assets being extracted and concentrated elsewhere, we're, we're actually talking about having those assets remain where they are and benefiting the people in the place there. Again, as with every place. And and the idea is not to have those places in competition, but to have them in solidarity with one another, right? And each place should be able to meet its own needs. And then from there, there can be solidarity exchanges or or other things if you can't get something in your local place or or whatnot. So it's a different way of thinking about those relationships rather than in a scarcity mindset or in a competitive mindset, but in an abundance and cooperative solidarity mindset. And that is very possible. I will just give a very quick example. And that is in some of the work we were involved in in Cleveland, which was a network of employee-owned cooperatives that provide goods and services to the large place-based institutions, hospitals, universities, local government, cultural institutions. Um, One of those... uh, facilities was an industrial green laundry facility because you don't think about it but hospitals have huge laundry needs and often the way laundry is done is that in large hospitals and especially in the united states in large hospital systems the hospitals work with what's called a gpo a group purchasing organization which is usually a huge multinational organization that aggregates all the laundry from every hospital in a certain region and then ships it somewhere where it can get that laundry done for the cheapest possible labor costs that they can find. Now, in that cost, they're not factoring in shipping costs. They're not factoring in environmental degradation costs from that shipping and what that means. They're not factoring in you know, the extraction of labor from one place to another, the social ills of paying low labor costs and what. So they're not actually valuing any of that, but they're saying it's the cheapest way to do it. Right. So one of the one of the cooperatives determined that a local industrial green laundry facility was was a hole in the economy that could meet the needs of those hospitals in place and avoid all of those shipping and and the externalities that came from that. So they started this up. They were able to start with a small percentage of the local hospital's um, laundry, and they couldn't get much more than that, largely because the local hospital was locked into a multi-year contract with one of these big corporations. That contract came up two years ago, and they put that contract out to bid, and the, and the employee-owned cooperative, the local uh, Evergreen Laundry Facility, actually won the full contract. They were able to actually, the large GPO had a facility in the outskirts of Cleveland. They were actually able to buy out that facility and convert it to a green facility, zero waste water management, all of that, and convert all of the employees in that facility to employee owners. None of them lost their jobs. There was there was no loss of jobs. There was no taking away from, from that corporation, except for maybe their very high profits. Um, but it, it brought that back locally. It created a service in the market that needed to be filled locally, and it preserved and improved the jobs of those people there. So it's it's not about taking away, it's about improving and and rerouting um, in a in a meaningful way. 
Yeah, sounds like a yeah, question of rebalancing, like you say. It's yeah. a good word, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we just step back for a minute and maybe could you talk a little bit about what led you to be interested in this whole field, community wealth building and social enterprise and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think with so many people in, in this field, you come to it circuitously. It's not always a, a linear way, but you know, one of also the the uh, joys of this work, but challenges is that there are so many aspects of it. So you can come at it from from so many different directions. I know so many people who've gotten involved from an enterprise direction or environmental direction or local government or, you know, so there are many different ways you can come into this. I myself, my background is in community economic development uh, uh, as as a young person, I started really volunteering in my community and getting more and more involved and, and was doing economic development. I was living in, in Chicago at the time, and I was working in a community development corporation on the Southwest side. It was one of the original in the U.S. community development corporations grew out of sort of the post-civil rights era yeah. uh, attempt to sort of reroute communities um, and and have some sort of rebuild communities, both economically and in terms of their infrastructure and, and so forth. And so I was working for a community development corporation that really had its lineage in the civil rights era. Its whole focus was on sort of um, you know, rebuilding black communities uh, in that part of of the city, and they did really great work: small business development, job training, affordable housing development. All of these things, really great work, um, really wonderful organization. And I worked there for for many years. But I started to find myself getting frustrated with the fact that there were all these great activities that they were cultivating. But really, they were unable to actually have full ownership and control of those economic institutions, of those community institutions. It was more about sort of providing incentives or pushing or demanding or organizing, but they were never able to really have control over the decisions made and the access granted and all of these things. And I became became increasingly frustrated with that wall that they kept hitting up against to really address economic inequality, to really address roots of poverty and and disinvestment, to really address some of these structural ills behind uh, these kinds of of inequalities and disparities, and and so I I kind of went on this this personal exploration of well how how can communities actually gain more control over these structural issues over these economic inequalities and and these systemic barriers really and that sort of ultimately led me to the work of the Democracy Collaborative and community wealth building and the focus on developing new forms of ownership of economic institutions and assets in place so that communities can directly own and control and make decisions and gain benefit from those kinds of assets that are what create uh, our own wealth and vibrancy and resilience and sustainability as, as communities. And so that's what ultimately led me to to community wealth building. Mm, that's that's really interesting. Way back when, but before FASTA was started, Richard Douthwaite, who was the economist, um, who was one of the founders, wrote a book called Short Circuits, Strengthening Local Economies in the, I think it was in an unstable world or something. And uh, when he talked to people who were involved in community development in Chicago, and this was in the mid 90s, you know, so I mean, this is quite 
early on. So I'm, I'm aware that there's this long vein, a big vein of, of knowledge and expertise to draw from in that part of the world, which is fascinating. So just in terms of the way in which in which community wealth building is evolving, uh, are there particular ways in which you see it uh, transforming in the future, like evolving in a particular direction? Are there particular parts of the world you'd like to see it happen, especially? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, our, our global vision is that community wealth building will be the way that communities meet their economic needs that will be the mainstream of economic development um, in the future that it won't be just a fringe effort to ameliorate some of the negative externalities of of this the current way we practice economic development the current way we build our economies but instead will be the central way we design and create um, economies of place, economies of people, place, and planet. So that that's our goal. And we talk about community wealth building as where the next system begins, where we can actually see and prefigure, if you will, what a more regenerative economic system can be and and what that can look like in place. So we very much think of community wealth building as prefiguring a larger systemic transformation of our global economy away from an economy of extraction, uh, economy of consolidation and agglomeration, an elite economy that benefits a few to an economy that is regenerative, that is recirculatory, that is sustainable and, and beneficial to, to the planet, to the ecosystems we live in, to each other and to social thriving and, and connectivity. You know, we talk about the economy as though it's some divine force, when in fact, the economy is something that we as humans have created to meet our needs, right? To to be able to meet the needs that we all have in place where we live. And what's happened is it's become this juggernaut of a of an of a divine force that we can't control. And and that's a myth and and that's deliberate that's a mythology that's been deliberately propagated to keep us outside of the workings of it. But we need to reclaim the economy and make it work for us and our places and where we live in reality, not in some financialized, you know, extrapolated ether. This the economy should be serving us and the planet. We need to put the economy back in service to our communities to the places where we live. And we can do that. And we absolutely can do that. And community wealth building is one way of showing us how we can do that, even as we live in the world as it is. And I'm not saying that's easy. I, I'm not naive about how difficult that can be. But we see community wealth building as one of the mechanisms to get to that well-being economy, to get to that resilient and regenerative economy that we know we can create. Because frankly, we created our current economy and it doesn't have to be that way. So we need to recreate again. And, and this is just one way of doing that in real time um, with the tools that we already have while also inventing new things that we need for, for a better and brighter future. That was Sarah McKinley from the Democracy Collaborative speaking with Caroline White. Many thanks to Sarah for her participation and as always to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link on social media and keep an eye out for our next podcast, which will go online at the end of March.